Back when I was going through training at Fort Meade, uh, basically it was pre before I actually got into the NSA and while I was attending AIT and uh, at the U.S. Army, I was uh, going through public affairs training, and they had one of the uh, one of the professors, one of the teachers. I don't know if you'd call them professors, but uh, he was a uh, an NCO. Um, but, uh, he ended up me and him had a pretty lengthy conversation, and he knew what I was getting in for. Um, he suspected it. Now I didn't outright tell the guy, you know, that I was actually going through the NSA or anything like that. But he he made it perfectly clear that he had actually been in U.S. Naval Intelligence, and he was a lifer, and uh, he regretted it. And in the process of the co this conversation, um, he ended up uh, saying something that really intrigued me. And it's not the first time I heard it because I heard it ended up hearing it afterwards a couple times. And he and he. Uh, the training I was going through was called public affairs, and more or less, um, I was more responsible for reporting um, on behalf of the U.S. military and uh, any kind of DOD type stuff and everything that was supposed to occur. And uh, I'd be responsible for acting as liaison with uh, with public officials, with civilians, and um, with other military uh, personnel. In particular, reporting for local newspapers and. Um, base-based newspapers, and, uh, Stars and Stripes, which was actually the uh, the military paper that was distributed all throughout the uh, the military. So we were. He ended up saying something I really found interesting, and the comment, the phrase that he used was, "Don't get me wrong, the story is the most powerful weapon that you'll ever encounter," and it it reverberated. You know, um, and and I had been, you know, d discussing with him, you know, the value of public affairs and that kind of stuff, and uh, he, you know, he made it perfectly clear that he he was glad that he was actually in public affairs, but um, he didn't like what he was doing for the military. You know, he didn't like the particular uh, spin. That's what he made clear. He just didn't like um, the approach that he was being forced to take and everything to basically always paint the military as, being, as looking good and everything. And in a lot of cases, they, they didn't do the best, you know, that they could have uh, when it came down to other people and when it came down to other countries and all of that, but operations internally within the organization itself and everything. And, uh, you know, he, he, me and him, we had a lengthy discussion about truth and reporting, that kind of stuff. And it just, um, you know, that, that comment, that phrase, was something I also heard later, too. So, uh, a part of my training for getting into the NSA to begin with, and prior to actually getting the top secret uh, clearance and everything, was, uh, was actually breaking into and getting into the, uh, into the NSA facilities themselves that, that was actually located at, uh, at Fort Meade itself. Now Fort Meade, um, it's located just outside of Laurel, Maryland, and it's stationed right in between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. And while it's a national security agency, is also referred to as no such agency. I can assure you that there's a, a, a rather large facility, most of it, that actually is that underground. And um, <laughs> they employ some really interesting people there. I was actually uh, pretty surprised at one point to learn that they ended up employing a, a great deal of prostitutes on a regular basis. And they would actually make porn in, the, in, the, uh, in a couple of the lower levels and everything. 
that was something that um, I didn't understand why, but at that point they, I later learned that they were actually trying to understand energy and the influence of energy, in particular sexual energy, and it was actually a pretty valid experiment that had been commissioned by a number of uh, people that were actually trying to understand the mind and the influence of the mind, you know, in particular uh, a study that had been done um, publicly based on people that actually tried lowering crime in the D.C. area by doing meditation in the D.C. area a couple years before. So the, the power of the story um, had been reinforced to me throughout my training, um, not just through, through him as, naval, as a naval intelligence officer who claimed he wasn't naval intelligence, but you know he made it clear he was still naval intelligence and everything in his own ways. And um, it also bought through my superiors and everything over at uh, over at the NSA, in particular my director. Now, um, it's the people that are actually put down on the website and everything are not the true people that are actually running the organization. A lot of cases, they actually have front people, people that are actually in the military that uh, can actually take the the heat for the civilians and but. Uh, but rest assured, the people that are actually civilians are in charge of that organization and everything. So, as I was going through this training and everything, um, I ended up being taught how to actually achieve something called spin. So, that's basically telling the truth about a situation without actually, without actually outright lying, um, but uh, also not not embellishing the entire truth about a situation that would actually make the military and or any of its related agencies look bad. Now, that was something incredibly important I learned, you know, so when I was first asked to do it and everything, they had actually created a situation, and uh, I didn't realize that they had done this situation intentionally to actually test some of us uh, that uh, ended up happening. Um, but the situation was um, in in the Air Force. They uh, actually in all the military branches. So whether or not you're talking about the Coast Guard, the Navy, the Army, the Marines, um, uh, what's the other one? Um, the the Air Force. Um, in all branches, you have something called CQ, and uh, CQ is more or less uh, responsible for maintaining physical presence and security for for the uh, for the military. Um, whether whether or not that branch is it's for any DOD branch service and everything. So that CQ can be comprised of any of the any of the branches in the military. Everybody that enters the US military is trained in in CQ duty. So you are regularly expected to guard every facility that you're at that's actually military owned and everything and guard the entrances and to guard the exits. Um, well, at least making the making sure the exits are secured, yeah, but uh, always 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 guarding any potential entrances. So and uh, the CQ duty um, always consisted of two people. There would never be alone time as a CQ person, and this was 24 by 7 security. So there was absolutely no exception to this rule whatsoever. So you go to any military barracks inside, um, inside the U.S. or even outside the U.S. And if it's military-based operation, it's a DoD-based operation. I can I can guarantee you that there will at least be two people guarding every entrance to, into whatever facility it is, whether or not it's the base itself um, or it's the separate barracks that uh, are actually contained in everything, containing people and everything. Every single one will contain. 
two people guarding the entrance at every single time. And and the reason for that is is pretty simple. You know, just basically situ- something called situational awareness. Well, and what uh, and but here's the thing about SEQ. You're still dealing with people. And uh, in this one place, uh, at about uh, three o'clock in the uh, in the afternoon, they ended up um, running some drills. The Air Force ended up uh, the Air Force barracks ran ran drills. Now, public affairs is a pretty valued uh, commodity all throughout the uh, the military branches. So, in in for the most case, it doesn't matter um, whether or not you're talking about House approval, Senate approval, presidential approval, or any military branch approval. If they can actually um, avoid war, believe it or not, they actually will. You know, and they would prefer, in all cases, not actually having to waste ammunition and you know the actual um, personnel in or in order to basically go to war. You know that costs money. That cost um, that costs lives, and that just flat out doesn't look good. And that's something that's been true basically since Vietnam War too. So the the big thing, the big emphasis that actually ended up happening post uh, post Vietnam was the infamous infamous emphasis on uh, psychological warfare, and that's understanding the mind and understanding um, how how people receive information, um, everything from propaganda to spin to the media influences that actually filter uh, that get filtered through the civilian agencies and also um, through basically every agency that you can imagine, and not only that. But basically, making sure that everybody that uh, that was attending the public affairs school understood typical military operations, particularly for other countries and everything, but also um, uh, internalized operations for U.S.-based military and everything, and how they were different differentiation between U.S.-based agencies and everything. So. CQ over at uh, over at the Air Force was a little bit different than um, than the Army, where basically you had to have a a drill sergeant on staff over at the U.S. Army in order to basically handle the transition. And if the drill sergeant wasn't there to handle that transition and everything, um, you were in deep doo doo. But uh, over at the U.S. Air Force, they had a little bit more lax uh, relationship when it came down to it, and uh, they just basically um, they had a sign off time and a, and a sign back in time. So. Oh, man, my allergies are killing me tonight. <coughs> so, in between the two branches, um, the U.S. Air Force and the, and the U.S. Army, we did things substantially different. Well, in one case... <coughs> sorry. I'm going to sneeze, too. I'm telling myself it's not cold, and a lot of people over at Starbucks had the same shit going on, too. So I don't think it's a cold. But uh, my nose is certainly, my sinuses are certainly killing me tonight. So, uh, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, the CQ ended up uh, transitioning over at, uh, over at the Air Force barracks. And typically, the, the, um, every CQ operation tends to run in, in four-hour stints um, based on personnel all the way up to eight-hour stints based on, uh, again, the number of personnel that are actually on staff that are actually able to do this. So you could have a longer shift or a shorter shift based on who you are, and this is actually in addition to your normal operation type stuff and everything, too. So 
about three o'clock in the afternoon uh they had a transition that occurred and uh they ended up um the two people that were actually supposed to sign in they ran about five minutes late well the cq staff that was actually on staff ended up checking out at three o'clock and the other staff ended up checking in at 305 leaving a window of about five minutes for them to basically come back and see that nobody's there well they also found um on the desk what appeared to be a bomb and at this point, um, the fire department was called. Um, they ended up having this big, huge uh, uproar and everything where basically the police were caught out. Uh, the area was quarantined, so all the barracks were cleared in the area. And at this point, um, literally, you're talking about, uh, I mean, this, this persisted from about 3.30 all the way to about 6 o'clock. Now, we're supposed to eat at 5, at five o'clock or 5.30, I think. It was somewhere in there. Um, but uh, the area didn't get its official clear until 6 o'clock. So needless to say, there was a lot of hungry people that uh, had gotten out of class, and you know, class ends at about three to three to four o'clock for most people and everything. That as we're going through EIT, and as we end up uh, getting out, um, all of a sudden we find out that we're not allowed to go back to our barracks and everything, and that all barracks are being searched at this point. So we're going, okay, well, what the fuck? We didn't know what to do. So here we are trying to figure out, uh, you know, what's going on and everything. And at that at that point, um, we ended up going through and just basically waiting until about six o'clock until finally we were cleared and a defac ended up staying open. A dining facility ended up staying staying open for us, and we ended up going back to our barracks and everything. Well. We ended up going to class the next day, and some of us heard about what happened and everything, and, you know, the, uh, more or less, we got one side of the story and everything, and uh, that there was a bomb threat, and that's actually all we were told. Well, there was eight of us in particular that were handpicked, um, top of our class. I had 48 people in my class altogether. Um, I, at this point, I think was ranked number five or something like that. So, uh, 48, I mean, basically, if you're top 20%, you're, you're going to get picked for this and everything. So, saying that you're top 20% ain't much. Um, me, uh, I mean, I was striving to be number one, but, you know, it just... Got a lot of competition in these areas and everything. It's not like it really means anything to be number one. But uh, in any case, um, eight of us were, were handpicked in order to do a story because there was actually, uh, there was actually an investigation by um, one of the generals of the area and everything wanted to know what happened. And uh, not only that, but because there's so many bases in the D.C. area and because um, the whole, there was a, a problem with... Um, basically security because of the Washington DC sniper that was actually in the area too they at this this point were wanting to know that at least their military facilities were secure and everything so they asked us to write an article that could potentially get published not just in um, in the local paper for the base and everything but also for the uh, for the local newspapers it could actually be potentially sent out to local newspapers and also appear in the uh, the um, Stars and Stripes, which is the um, U.S. Uh, US military, um, I think it's the Army-wide it, uh, uh, newspaper and everything. So, anyways, um, so we all were required to do investigations and everything. 
So eight of us were sent out, and we all knew that we're probably going to be hitting the same people and everything, but uh, one of the requirements was we can only uh, go in teams of two, um, and uh, there had to be four separate, four separate groups, you know, so they wanted to limit the number of people that were actually going to interview these people and keep it so where at most they had four interviews to, to deal with and everything. And uh, that also allowed, um, allowed the people that were actually doing the investigating to get, to get four different perspectives and four different sets of questions and everything to find out what they considered was um, the most accurate uh, per, you know, perspective, you know, based on um, several different perspectives of information that were actually coming in to, to de determine what happened. So, me and a guy, we ended up, um, I think it was uh, Heinz, um, he was, uh, he ended up being my roommate later. He was number one in the class, and me and him ended up taping me up, and um, he's, you know, the guy's an uptight anal, um, uh, obsessive, uh, compulsive dude, and you know, while I absolutely respected the guy, me and him didn't get along. It was almost like, uh, I mean, I'm... I, you know, when it comes down to it, I'll play the games and everything, you know, but uh, I'll play the games to the extent of just being able to get by, um, but I was more focused on the NSA than I was the Army and actually tr trying to prove myself for the Army and everything. So, in any case, um, we ended up uh, going to interview uh, the base commander. <laughs> we ended up uh, interviewing the, uh, the CQ, there's a couple of the CQ guys that were actually on staff at that point. Um, we also ended up uh, interviewing the drill sergeant uh, for it too, and what we discovered was that uh, during this lapse, there had traditionally been no communication. Actually, ended up uh, going on between between the two people uh, about what happened during this transition and everything. And apparently, this happened quite frequently, where they had um, anywhere between a five to fifteen minute lapse, and that's the first thing that the the U.S. Air Force, you know, guys admitted. You know, now they they weren't pointing the finger at anybody other than than themselves for causing this commotion and everything. You know, for the entire base and everything. You know, um, but the problem was one person overreacted to the entire thing, and that 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 person, that CQ person that was on staff and everything, saw this immediately. Didn't do what they're supposed to, which is go through their chain of command and everything, and instead they actually reported it to the highest levels, um, based on, uh, and going directly to not just a, a base fire department, but they ended up calling the local fire department for the Laurel, for Laurel, the city of Laurel. Well, this caused all kinds of problems because at this point not only is this not confined to the base now it's also it's also involving civilian agencies and it's involving civilian agencies from the very start so this this is actually why it ended up becoming such a huge problem now if it had been the uh, the local uh, the, uh, they actually had a fire department on base and everything it was a small one and everything but um, they didn't have a bomb squad and uh, so that and this person apparently knew that and that's actually why they ended up calling the civilian agency well he ended up getting reprimanded still because he didn't go through the proper authorities and everything to basically make the uh, to make the call and everything and at this point um, once all this happened uh, this it just escalated it spiraled out of control so once the the local police were actually brought on you know to this entire situation and everything along with the local fire department and the local uh, bomb squad and everything for for uh, laurel 
um, they ended up coordinating things with the local uh, local fire department, but it was there. They were absolutely required um, by by Baltimore and also by uh, basically by Maryland and also by D.C. because of the proximity to um, you know to the president and to that kind of stuff. That uh, that they end up uh, cross-reporting, and they ended up having to actually resolve it themselves. So they ended up showing up, um, and basically, they ended up having probably at least a, a dozen fire department or fire trucks that were actually out in the area. Some because of a curiosity, um, they had police department out that was actually checking and interviewing people and everything. And and because of this, um, what ended up happening was. A, uh, they had drills uh, prior to the the CQ coming on at 3:05, and uh, the drills in the mid afternoon and everything involved some, you know, some people that uh, had they basically they had school for the first part of the morning, but they had they had to do have had to keep them occupied for the latter half of the day, and they ended up uh, basically running. Um, Running military type drills and everything, and uh, trying to actually come up with uh, come up with ways to defuse situations. And what they had to defuse situations was, you know, realistic-looking bombs, realistic-looking uh, armaments, you know, grenades and all this other shit and everything. Um, realistic-looking firearms, but uh, they were all, you know, rubber. And and had he actually inspected it, gotten a little closer to it, which he clearly didn't did do the right thing by not getting near it. Um, but had had the communication gone on, it was a fundamental problem of communication to begin with because the CQ that was on staff um, had had received the material literally moments before they ended up checking out, and they decided to actually leave the material for uh, a CQ is responsible for putting this stuff away. You know, once the people ended up getting done using it, and uh, at that point um, they said, "No, we're going to save it for you know we're going to check out now, and we're going to leave it for the people that are actually coming on next." Well, they ended up uh, doing that, but the problem is they didn't leave any notes. They didn't explain any situation. They just basically left it there. They checked out at 3 o'clock. So when the CQ, uh, the first guy arrives for CQ at 3.05, he sees this thing on his desk that he's never seen before that fucking freaks him out. So the first thing he does is pick up his cell phone, and he actually calls calls 911. Well, guess where 911 goes through? goes to the local police department, goes to local fire department and everything. Um, not the uh, base-based. It goes directly to the local-based uh, fire department. And that point, all of a sudden, now you've got civilian agencies involved. And that's why it escalated. So, it was just one of those things that... <coughs> You know, given the whole situation, it was kind of like a cascade of events. It was kind of funny, you know, when this happened. Now, so I, I ended up... Um, me and Hines, now, even though we interviewed people separately and every, or together, me and Hines, we ended up getting the same exact perspective for the same story and everything. Um, I ended up, you know, each, was, each of us was responsible for writing a story about what happened. And I wrote the story. For me, it was actually kind of comical. You know, I mean, here you have a whole series of events that occurs and a fundamental miscommunication, you know, between people. Now, the drills, it makes sense, right? You know, um, you're going to you're going to have ordnance training and and this kind of training and everything, particularly if you've got these guys going overseas and everything. So for me, that was believable, you know, um, 
Yeah, and and this for me is just like okay, it's it's human error, right? You got a couple guys that are sitting there looking at the clock at three o'clock, saying, "Fuck this noise, I'm done," you know, and all of a sudden they end up basically checking out, and this is just standard practice for them. You know, so where it's no big deal. And, and the drill sergeants aren't exactly locking down on them because the drill sergeants aren't the hard asses in the, in the Air Force that they are in the Army. Everybody knows this. You know, so I even learned this from my buddy that uh, he was, I mean, a couple buddies that were actually in the Air Force. Loved the guys to death, but, you know, the drill sergeants in between the U.S. Army versus the U.S. Air Force is night and day fucking difference. So... I I heard this and I'm just like okay so the drill sergeants aren't, aren't busting the asses of these guys you know whenever they um, they don't uh, whenever they check in a little bit late and everything so it's understandable huh okay so a you have a fundamental miscommunication that actually occurs you know um, between the CQ staff and everything um, you have a checkout at three o'clock and uh, without without backup and everything so you have an overlap of five you know five to fifteen minutes that's actually occurring regularly and you also have a a complete lack of communication about what the status of things are in between one shift and another shift so as a result you have this whole cascade where the you know, CQ staff checks out at five o'clock or at three o'clock. Uh, they leave a um, a dummy bomb on their desk and everything, expecting the other guys to put it away. You know, because it's used for practice uh, for ordnance practice training. And uh, the guy comes in. He's by himself. He freaks out. He calls nine one one. You know, he doesn't know. I mean, they haven't encountered an emergency situation before like this. You know, so he does the first thing that, that most normal people do, particularly people that are transitioning from civilian to uh, to military responses and everything. They, they don't understand, you know, that this is, you know, that you handle things differently in the military than you do in the civilian world. And, and you do actually leverage base phones and that kind of stuff in order to call 911 so you can actually go through the local channels and everything. And your, your private phone is just that. It's a private phone, you know. You could use it off-duty and everything, but when it comes down to on-duty type stuff and everything, you know, I mean, a simple lesson from that is, you know, everybody made a mistake. You know, some little, little flaw along the way. Whether or not that was a drill sergeant's and not reinforcing uh, con continuity uh, for timelines and everything, or that was this the first CQ staff that uh, that they didn't uh, they didn't actually wait for the next uh, next people to come in line and everything, um, or that was the the secondary CQ guy that came on at 3:05 that ended up making this call and everything. Every single one of them made a mistake. Well. So I ended up uh, doing a report for this, and I actually ended up getting selected to to do it for the base newspaper, um, sight unseen. Now, um, so I, I wrote an article, and and this is the weird thing about this all. Um, each of us had been selected to have our article appear somewhere different and everything. And the reason for doing this is they just wanted to show different perspectives on the same event, and they wanted us not to influence each other with the writing and everything. That's why they pre-selected us and everything. So we found this out after we ended up going through the interviews um, that the eight of us we were going to appear in eight separate uh, say eight separate um, 
different uh, kinds of uh, distribution networks. So one would go online. At that point, the online presence wasn't that good and everything. Um, another one would go uh, through. Another one would get selected for Stars and Stripes. And uh, then another one would be literally sent to the president. Um, and it was just basically, it was eight different uh, distribution places that we ended up going through. So I wrote an article. And that article included uh, the comedy of events that ended up happening. For me, I actually found it, um, I found it, it was like a breath of fresh air. You know, here I had been busting my ass. Um, I had been deceived when it came down to which branch of the forces, of the armed forces to sign up for. Um, and had been deceived, you know, by the U.S. Army, like everybody else's, to basically believe that the barracks and the system and everything, you know, that uh, getting in, in through the Army and everything, it's it's got better facilities and it's, you know, it's it's not what it was back in the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s and in your mom and dad's Army and that kind of stuff. Uh, I learned a very quick lesson and everything throughout that, that that was far from the truth and everything. You know, that uh, they were still actively deceiving people in order to actually get them to enlist. And it was just one of those things that, uh, you know, for me, you know, um, I, I at this point was a little bit jaded about the... Uh, um, about the U.S. Army, especially in contrast to other branches and everything, and I'd wished uh, at this point that I'd actually taken another branch that I'd gone into. Um, well, I mean, I was afraid if uh, if I didn't get the uh, the top secret clearance and everything, um, that I'd be stuck to you know for six to eight years in whatever branch I ended up selecting, and uh, that's actually why I ended up chosen choosing the U.S. Army. You know, um, I had an age problem with the U.S. Air Force. Um, I had and just in case I didn't properly explain that, um, in order for me to basically, even though I was still going to get six to eight million dollars a year, and I was obligated to sign up for six to eight years of uh, contract work of of work for the U.S. government and everything, even though I would get that, no matter which branch of the service I ended up taking it, you know, accepting. Um, if I could not obtain the top secret clearance uh, through the course of, of uh, basically me going through basic training and through AIT, if I could not obtain that top secret clearance, well, at that point, I would actually be stuck in whatever branch I had selected. So for me, I had the looming threat of that to basically reinforce my selection and what made my selection a little bit even more difficult too was the fact that the US Air Force had age restrictions at 29 um, I at this point was 31 when I made this selection so I, I couldn't choose the US Air Force which w would have been my number one choice um, the Marines I wouldn't have taken to you know there's no way in hell I would have taken the US Marines based on you know the everything I've heard about them and you know, I mean, everybody knows about Normandy and, you know, about these guys are, I mean, they're jarheads. They're pretty much, they, the stereotype about jarheads is absolutely true. Um, so that left the Navy and the, uh, and the Army. And for me, I actually had a hard time imagining being on board a sea-bound vessel and everything for years on end. You know, I didn't like the idea of actually being stuck um, out at sea in potentially a submarine or, or a, uh, an aircraft carrier and everything for six months time and at a time and everything. Um, I, I didn't I didn't mind the idea of actually the port time, you know, that I would actually get. But I I like the idea of having firm earth, you know, underneath me. It, it, uh, 
um, at most most of the time and everything. So, anyways, I ended up choosing the U.S. Army because of this. Well, in this case here, I had gone through really kind of hell when it came down to basic training and uh, through AIT and everything, and uh, it was it was definitely a little bit tougher than I anticipated. Um, and the tougher part of it was, you know, when it came down to um, being told what to do on a regular basis and everything, and and knowing that I have this looming threat of, uh, you know, the top secret clearance that could potentially make it so where I'm stuck here. So, anyways, uh, for me, I, I ended up basically, you know, doing my best and everything, and, and my best in this case was, was more or less saying, look, you know, the U.S. Air Force guys, um, while I... I greatly respect them, <coughs> which I did. Um, what I saw and what I heard through the course of these interviews was really just a series of mistakes and everything that, if you're going to compare them, you know, I mean, there's some things that they can certainly learn from the U.S. Army and everything about. And uh, I, I didn't put that down in the article. I just put what I consider to be the facts from my perspective. And the facts can, you know, insisted or can, you know, consisted of uh, CQ, um, you know, problems with uh, cross-reporting, um, drill sergeants not following up, um, you know, and generally speaking, uh, a lackadaisical, you know, uh, inability to be able to maintain proper situational awareness the entire time. Well, I ended up getting this kicked back by the one guy I told you about that ended up making a comment about that story. And this is actually what, what led him to say this to begin with. And uh, I said, this, you know, he ends up, uh, you know, he's responsible for doing the review of it. And he ends up calling me, you know, calling me to the side and everything. And he goes, um, he goes, I know this is what you really want to submit. And he goes, I've done the fa uh, the proof checking on it, you know, because we're responsible for making sure that it can actually appear in print and that it's actually um, edited correctly. And he's he's one of the ones that uh, is responsible for for the editing of the content. And he goes, uh, he goes, um, I'm looking at this. And he goes, uh, while I understand you believe this is a fax and everything, he goes, uh, I'm going to tell you something. He goes, um, how how can you make these guys look good? And I said, what? I said, it's hard to make them look good because they all ended up fucking up. You know, and he goes, I know. He goes, I know that's the facts. You know, but he goes, he goes, uh, he goes, it's kind of our responsibility to make the military look good. You know, and he goes, it doesn't matter which branch it is. He goes, we're a DOD facility here, and it's part of our responsibility to make the entire um, military look good. It doesn't matter what the branch is. He goes, so while it may, uh, he goes, while there may be some things that actually happen within the, within the Army that may, and, and, he, and he actually uh, winked and he said, and the Navy, and uh, that, that the Air Force wouldn't do. He goes, uh, he goes the, the simple fact of the matter is, what did they do right? And I started thinking about it, and... I'm just like, I, I shrugged at first, because I really didn't, I mean, I, I couldn't think like that, and, and he goes, oh, come on, he goes, how long did you spend with these guys interviewing, how many people did you interview, and I went through my head, it was about five altogether that I ended up, ended up uh, six people altogether that I ended up interviewing, and he goes, uh, he goes, you can't think of one thing that, that they've all done right, and I said, well, I guess, he goes, he goes, this is my challenge to you. He goes, drop your knee-jerk reaction to basically write the worst thing that you possibly can about the situation. I said, it's not the worst thing. I said, that's just the truth about what happened. And he goes, and he goes, 
Um, and this is when he made the comment about the story. He goes, the, the story, you know, the story is the most powerful weapon in, in existence. And you've used just effectively, with this article here, you've just effectively used that whip, weapon to dismantle uh, an entire organization just by, just by your words alone. And, and I looked at him, and I'm just like, I'm suspicious at this point, and I, I end up responding with, I, I don't think that's, uh, that's really quite what I'm doing. And he goes, oh yeah? He goes, what, ha what happens if the president ends up getting hold of this? Or, or worse yet, what happens if the New York Times actually gets a hold of this? You know, um, what's, what's the effective response going to be when it comes down to the, um, the military and their capabilities? You know, in particular, the U.S. Air Force. Is, is, that, is this going to instill faith in the U.S. military service if, if in a training environment and everything where everybody fucks up and does it in such a catastrophic way that, uh, that quite literally, you know, $100,000 and plus is spent because one person wasn't trained properly? Is, is, that, is that the best that you can say about a situation like this? And at this point, I really felt, felt like what I felt was the weight of the world on me. And he goes, this weapon that you've just wielded and everything has systematically taken a brick out of the pillar of, uh, of the Air Force and its, uh, and its structure. You know, now imagine a lot of other people that are starting to do the same thing. Is that actually going to help the, uh, help the military and help it, help it when it comes down to its uh, capabilities? You know, or is it going to cause it more harm? And he goes, uh, he goes, this is a question I, that I ask myself every time I write, write any article. You know, I'm representing a company, an organization, or whoever and everything. Um, and I ask myself this, this question. You know, um, is, is who I represent represented by what I'm saying here? And I, and I started really kind of thinking about it. And uh, then he turned around and he asked me, he goes, who are you representing? And I said, well... You know, I mean, I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective before. And this is actually why this conversation was really interesting. And I started thinking, okay, well, I'm representing, of course, the U.S. military. And so, well, what specific branch are you representing? And I said, well, of course, the U.S. Army. And he goes, okay. And he goes, we're DOD service here and everything. He goes, are you representing the DOD? And I said, well, probably. I mean, I'm making it more clear that there's better tactics that could actually be used in everything. And he goes, okay, he goes, is it necessary for the whole world to actually see the, see the necessity to actually alter those tactics? And then at that point, it started hitting me. And, I, and for me, it was a firm no. You know? and, and he goes, that's kind of my point. And he goes, uh, he goes let me ask you this. He goes, uh, if you're to actually, uh, you know, if this, an article like this got in the New York Times and everything, what, what kind of um, faith would it have for you and the organization of, uh, known as the U.S. military have? Because you've you got to understand that this is actually going to reflect on the entire military operation itself. Not just the U.S. Army, or not just the U.S. Air Force, but basically anybody that's in the, in the military service altogether. I was like, holy shit, he's right. And he goes, not only that, <coughs> think about foreign agencies. You know, let's say you're, um, you're Chinese. You know, and you're reading uh, about the buffoons that actually ended up doing this, you know, doing this operation and uh, about how military training is going over in the United States. What's that going to do to you? You know, is that going to give you a sense of faith about your own military organization and everything? And I just started thinking, holy shit. He goes, yeah, exactly. He goes, 
I mean, I, I, and that's actually at that point, you know, he could tell uh, what I was thinking just because my, my response really changed because I realized at that point that not only are my words actually causing a, um, a problem, you know, towards the, you know, towards the United States military and everything itself and, and my words that were, hadn't been sent out fortunately and everything, um, had they not been, you know, but they would also have been responsible for putting a little bit more faith in the operations of, of U.S., of other military organizations that may not necessarily have the best interest of the U.S. military at heart. And not only that, but not just that, but um, the the entirety uh, could actually destabilize the the belief that the U.S. military, and not only that, the United States is actually represented from a military perspective well enough because this is the kind of training that we go through. And once I started really considering that perspective and everything, I started realizing how valuable, you know, what he was saying was to me. And uh, I, you know, I to this day really do wonder um, about the training that I ended up going through there, you know, and about those kind of people and everything. You know, I mean, he... Now, he made it clear that he was naval intelligence, you know, that uh, he was there to assist with some of the operations and everything and also train people in public affairs. And he had some pretty brilliant uh, ideas and everything that he ended up saying. But I, I started realizing um, at that point and understanding the necessity in order to monitor the words that you're saying and also take into account and ask yourself some really what I consider extremely important questions whenever you're actually writing an article. Um about something, you know, and uh, in, in, in this case right here, particularly if you're representing a newspaper or something like that, um, I mean, you always ask the first question, am I representing myself, you know, um, then you ask, ask yourself the question, am I representing um, the paper that I work for, you know, and uh, in some cases you may not find that you are, but here's the thing. If you're doing this on a consistent enough basis and everything, then you're working at the wrong place. Plain and simple. If you are constantly confronting the news operations of the organization that you're actually working for, you know, from a, a company, a corporate perspective and everything, and uh, you find this is happening on a repetitive basis, well, at this point for me, that's just fodder for you to basically say, get the fuck out of there. Go somewhere else. Find a different company to go to and everything. You know, find a different organization that you, that better um, that allows you to better uh, allows you an opportunity to have better. I'm trying to think of the word for this representation because that's ultimately what that company is. You know, whether or not it's CNN or MSNBC or any of these companies and everything, each of these news-faring organizations and everything are effectively names, but they're also representatives to a belief system. And if they don't share your belief system, you know, then the fact of the matter is you just, you're not working at the wrong place. And especially if you find yourself constantly writing articles, you know, that don't represent you well, or cause conflict with the organization and everything on a repetitive basis and everything, and or look, make the make the organization look bad, you know, plain and simple. You know, so for me, it was just a valuable lesson in that. Not only that, but uh, the other thing that I started realizing too was uh, the last question he asked was, you know, how how do other countries and how does it how does it represent your country? And not only that, but how do other countries and uh, and potential opposition actually, um, you know, regard this information? And uh, that's when I ended up uh, starting to realize it's just like, um, 
you know, that uh, all this stuff can be really kind of fucked up and everything. And, uh, you know, that it just, you know, does, the, the ultimate question is, does my news about the U.S. Air Force and everything represent the U.S. government and the United States of America? Well, and that's actually where it starts becoming a little bit debatable. Um, one could say that we have freedom of the press here and uh, that we have the capability to be able to express ourselves in a way that, uh, that allows us to be able to outline the truth and that truth itself is something that, um, you know, that more or less it's, it's highly perspective based, right? You know, so once, once we actually start um, discussing that truth, is that truth that we're discussing really the truth? You know, and that's actually the, the thing I started asking. So he, the next thing that he asked me to do before I go on, the, on that point and everything, the next thing that he asked me to do was he asked me to actually go through and write a different article. But he goes, my challenge to you is make it so where nobody looks bad. He goes, I want you, um, I want you to applaud, uh, applaud the people that actually ended up going through this operation. And he goes, after you're done with that, he goes, uh, he goes, you're going to get the opportunity, you know, to submit submit one or the other to me. He goes, I'm not going to make that decision. He goes, but this is my challenge to you, is to actually write write an article about the whole situation and everything. But I, I'm challenging you to actually write it, um, applauding. And, and making those people that are actually involved in this situation look good. And you know what? It really stretched my noggin. I started thinking at this point, um, and I ended up walking away from it. I was a little bit peeved at first, you know, because he had said a lot of things very quickly, you know, and uh, it was I was just trying to understand, trying to actually fathom what he was saying. You know, I was trying to swallow it all. I mean, just because there's so much that was said in such a short time and everything. And, uh, but I knew, you know, because I was pissed off, I knew that he was right. That there was something I was fundamentally missing. And, um, and that, that my idea of the truth, um, did make these guys look like buffoons. You know, but really, is that in the best interest of, of me, my, my, um, my company, my, and re, when I refer to my company, I'm referring to the company at, uh, you know, at the U.S. Army. Um, the company is basically the entire contingent of people that were actually stationed over at, uh, over at Fort Meade, by the way, um, in this one set of barracks and everything. So was I representing me, my company, um, my, uh, you know, the Fort Meade, um, at every level, was I really representing them? Or was I just more or less being an asshole? That was really kind of a weird question I had to ask myself. So I ended up, he gave me to the next day to basically come up with another submission and everything. And he just wanted me to review it. But he, he said that ultimately I'd be responsible for taking one or the other and actually submitting the uh, the one that, uh, that I wanted to submit. And uh, at that point, whichever one I submitted would be the one that re- would represent me. So I ended up going through and um, I completely redid it. 
and I reached back throughout the course of the interview. I had actually uh, I had bought a, a tape recorder and had recorded all the interviews, so I listened to it again. And this time, instead of listening for the failures and the problems that occurred and all this other stuff, instead I started paying attention to um, to what actually worked. Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is, the uh, the fire department was literally out there within within uh, uh, 90 seconds, literally 90 seconds. So not only, um, and not only that, but the CQ, the that CQ guy ended up clearing out the entire facility um, with within within basically 60 seconds. He cleared out the entire facility, got everybody out of there, literally right before the um, the fire department got out there. You know, so he was on the fire department at the same time. He's telling everybody clear the facility. Um, this guy got the got the shit done without hesitation. So here they have what he considers to be a valid threat, and within 60 seconds he had the place. Uh, and 60 seconds for a massive barracks like this. I mean, in the middle of the day is not hard to believe, but uh, it, it's also the type of thing that goes to show how quickly communications can work within three levels and three floors and everything. We're basically sounding the fire alarm saying, get the fuck out of here right now, and boom. You know, 60 seconds later, and by the time the fire department arrived and actually started pulling up and everything, you know, two minutes had passed by. Uh, well, was, I, I think uh, altogether it was um, the the time that, uh, that ended up uh, coming through was about two minutes' time from the time that he ended up hanging up that phone call. He had already notified other people by this point and everything. But uh, within two minutes, by the time he had the fire department uh, actually literally walking up that door and everything... Um, with their with their bomb squad shit and everything, um, the entire facility was cleared. So, this this is just record response time. If you've got an imminent threat and and you can have somebody in CQ that actually literally evacuates the entire facility, three floors of a rather large two hundred people building and everything, within within that period of time, two minutes time. There's something to be said about that, with that kind of co communication and everything. So, without hesitation, he did a great job with that. Now, the other thing that uh, that ended up happening that uh, I ended up really questioning is, you know, the uh, they had a um, a poor coordination with communication and everything that uh, happened between the CQ duties uh, that were on on response and everything. Now, at this point, I ended up really questioning: should I actually mention that the uh, that the bomb threat uh, was averted and everything? Um, or actually that it was a, a false uh, false alarm and everything. And I started thinking about this, and I'm just like going, well, you know, part of the problem with me mentioning that it, uh, that it was a, a clusterfuck of operations and everything is it starts making people look bad. So if I omit that altogether, and, uh, and if I just basically say that the, uh, keep it simple, you know, this is actually what I finally decided on, was to basically say that the, that the bomb threat was a false alarm. You know, so rather than explain that it was a clusterfuck of errors and everything, instead I turned it around and I said, it's a, it ended up being a false alarm. And that's how I ended. So, um, combined with that, we had uh, a wonderful response by the police department. We had representation by the police that were out there within five minutes. Within 15 minutes, we had literally the entire uh, it was a radius of about uh, 150 meters that we actually had cleared. Within 15 minutes, we had that entire radius. It was about 150, maybe 250 meters. 
um, actually 150, let's see, yeah, it was about 150 meters that we ended up having cleared. 150 meters that we had cleared within, uh, within, I think it was actually less time than that. But the fact of the matter is we had the entire area absolutely evacuated, devoid of people. Not only that, but we built up a perimeter and everything um, that quickly, or they had built up a perimeter that quickly. So not only was there a rapid response by the CQ, but there was also an equally rapid response by the police department and also the fire department. The fire department liaised with the local, uh, with the Fort Meade uh, fire department and everything. And Unfortunately, when it came down to the communication and everything that ended up happening, well, it was just one of those things that uh, because of the the fact that the person ended up, um, <laughs> uh, the entire operation should have been over with a lot, bef a lot before them, but because local police were actually called on this, uh, and fire department was called on it, they were required, absolutely required, to go throughout the facilities, even though it was determined to be a false alarm, and that took a great deal of time because of the bomb, I mean, the nature of it being a bomb threat. They don't, they take these things seriously. So even if they quickly determine that it's all, it's all, fa um, it's all based on a miscommunication and everything, the simple fact of the matter is they have to, they are absolutely required to do a full, a full sweep of the place and everything to make sure that even though it's deemed miscommunication that there's absolutely no threat there. That's why it ended up taking two hours. Well, you know, this, this is all a part of this operation and everything, and the fact of the matter is not only did they clear the perimeter, but they ended up having a massive police, police and fire department presence. They ended up getting, taking care of all the shit that was there and everything, and in the end, they ended up determining that it was a false alarm and everything, but the fact of the matter is they had such a massive and overwhelming and quick response to everything for the events that happened there that uh, had this been a real alarm, um, there's absolutely no doubt that, uh, that it can actually, you know, that, that the th problems that can occur based on something like this can actually be mitigated by the sheer volume of presence that was actually there of people that were fully capable of handling the situation and everything. So, that's how we wrote the article. I ended up basically commending everybody um, from the top down, and uh, I just ended up uh, talking about how wonderful the police did, how wonderful the uh, the, the fire departments did, how well the fire departments, uh, the uh, civilian fire department, when they ended up getting a word of this threat, they communicated with the base fire department, and at that point they ended up meeting on the scene. Um, you know, so the coordinated efforts between them that ended up happening as, as a result of it, and uh, just the whole... Uh, even though the Air Force itself, um, through a lack of coordination, caused this problem to occur, the coordinate, coordinated efforts of the entirety of all the emergency services proved that, uh, that they can handle these conditions and everything, and, uh, and they did it extremely well. Well, so that's the article I wrote, and uh, it was uh, pretty impressive, to be honest. I mean... I, when I started looking at it from that perspective, and rather than, you know, just micro-focusing on three, you know, individuals who fucked up and everything, I ended up taking a look at the, at the bigger situation. And the bigger situation was far more, um, I don't know, it was far more feel-good. 
you know, than the than just three three people that ended up uh, screwing up. And at this point, you know, once I ended up getting done with the article, I ended up talking with him the next day, and uh, we, you know, I, I showed him the article, and he ended up editing it, and, and uh, he hands it back to me, and he keeps a straight face on the entire time, and he goes, um, he goes, okay, he goes, so which one do you want to submit? And I, at this point, um, I knew which one I wanted to submit. I mean, the feel good article made me feel good. If I felt like it represented, um, it represented the operational status and capabilities a lot better, you know, than uh, than one article showing the the plight of uh, three people and everything. Um, I felt like uh, it, it just represented a lot better and everything, you know, but. I, I, at this point, didn't have a whole lot of confidence in my own skills at this point as a uh, public affairs guy. So, I ended up uh, turning around and basically saying, well, you know, I mean, you're the one that's uh, helping me with the editorial type stuff and everything. He goes, but ultimately, this is your article. And, uh, and at this point, he kept maintaining a straight face. And I'm just like, fuck, he's going to make me, make me make this decision. So I ended up taking, uh, I had both the papers in my hand. They were actually uh, printed out. And, uh, I had, you know, one that, uh, one in one hand, one, one in the other hand. And I looked at the one in my left hand, which is one from the day before, which, you know, talked about the whole uh, collusion of just really, you know, just bad arrangement, bad, you know, bad people that ended up doing this and everything. And at the, that point, I looked at the, uh, the paper that I had in the right hand. And I'm just like, you know, at this point, I ended up taking the one in my left hand, the, the one about the, the negative news and everything. I ended up uh, ripping it in half and throwing it in the trash. Then he goes, uh, how do you feel about that? You know, he still maintained a straight face. And I said, well, honestly, I feel pretty good about it. I said, but uh, I don't know. Um, I, I said, I don't know if this is really news. He goes, news is what you make it. You know, that's, it was something kind of weird that he said. And, uh, and I ended up later finding out that uh, the entire event, the entirety of the event, had been created. That there was basically, a, I mean, the entire situation was very real. Don't get me wrong. But certain things had been put in place um, in a very precise fashion to create the event and uh, those people that uh, that reacted the way that they did and everything um, it had actually been predicted and the entirety of the event had been set up you know for the eight of us that were going to do the article it was an entirely fabricated event you know just to basically kind of like prove a point you know try it was, it was basically as a lesson you know was was the key behind it all so now, um, I, qu I quit listening to the news about a year and a half ago, and among the reasons I quit listening to the news and paying attention to news and, and telling anybody, you know, the same thing and everything, um, is because of the whole negativity. You know, um, for a long time I had looked for happy news on the internet, you know, for things that, uh, you know, that actually made me feel good and that kind of stuff on a regular basis. And I, I constantly make it a fact to actually, you know, try to look for things that, uh, that actually might, might actually, you know, put some hope in my life or put, you know, make me feel good and that kind of stuff. And 
I, I find myself constantly swerving towards TV shows and movies and things like that, you know, and uh, my inspiration comes through my own filtering system, you know, so I'm going to look, you know, to certain movies and TV shows that, while it might have a lot of darkness associated with it, you know, I, I internally spin that information, you know. And I think the NSA, you know, in part in combination with the uh, U.S. military and everything for that training, you know, just because when it comes down to it is the, um, the nature of, of information, the way that it flows into, into us as individuals, not only that, but the way it flows into um, a company or a city or a country, um, the way that it flows in is, is filtered at every level by, um, by the culture, by the organizations, um, by the people that actually read it. Um, and this, this for me is, it, it's, it's an inbuilt collective bias. And those inbuilt, inbuilt uh, collective biases and filters, in a lot of cases, taint that information. And what I've learned over the last, you know, last five years is that those collective biases influence that information in such profound ways that uh, it, it actually creates a collective mindset and, uh, and a, a, a coll collective-based facts that aren't necessarily the true facts. And in a lot of cases, these facts cause problems themselves. So what I'm referring to by this is uh, if you look at uh, the state of news right now, and if you're looking at uh, CNN, NBC, um, if you look at the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, or anything like that, uh, if you start comparing, contrasting these news sources and everything, one thing that you're going to find in common is the fact that they're actually all sounding the same. Every single one of these um, has a tendency to leverage aggregators, uh, whether or not it's AP or Reuters. And uh, every one of these aggregators actually has prioritized information based on a voting system, um, for the most part. You know, and it's, uh, it's collectively based news that actually just tends to, uh, tends to, act, uh, tends to sound the same. So whether or not you're looking at uh, CNN or an NBC or anything like this, each one of these organizations, which in my opinion, used to have minds of their own, used to have perspectives of their own. Um, now Fox News, you know, we all know is a conservative news site and everything. You know, um, at least that's how it used to be and everything. Where if you look at news 20 plus years ago and everything, each of these news, news agencies and everything tended to um, be highly, um, have, a, have a mind of their own. You know, they had a perspective that they ended up trying to reinforce and everything. Um, they had, to some degree, um, you can't really call it an agenda, but what you can call it is a... Um, you had an owner of the company or agency and everything, and that owner of that company would make it a fact, you know, to basically... Uh, reinforce that the only news that went through that or that agency and that organization was was uh, supportive of of that owner's uh, owner's belief system, and let's take a look at Rupert Murdoch as an example of this too. You know, um, anything that he owned, Time Warner and that kind of stuff, all the way to um, the news. Uh, he ended up buying MySpace and uh, there's another one. Um, oh, I can't remember which news station he owned. But he had a tendency to basically uh, influence the news, and he received a lot of shit for this, too. That he would basically put uh, news that was biased out there. 
Well, once I understood the nature of bias and everything, um, at that point I ended up understanding that there's a necessity for bias out there. You know, there's an absolute necessity. Now, the bias that I was actually inputting when it came down to that news article and everything, um, at first it was based on, you know, this belief system that, you know, that three guys fucked up. Well, I never, at first, never had considered that the entire event could have been orchestrated. You know, that this entire thing could have been fabricated. And had I actually, uh, had I actually taken the time to understand how this could have, could have happened in an orchestrated way and everything, um, I may not have actually seen the bigger picture. You know, so I, I guess actually that's actually what I kind of miss. You know, so a year and a half ago, two years ago maybe, um, I stopped listening to the news altogether. Uh, part of the reason for that is it's, uh, it tends to be always the same. You know, so whether or not you're talking about the the, the latest terrorist of the day, uh, and this has been persisting it throughout my life, there's always um, always somebody new to fear. There's always something uh, going on when it comes down to a rifle or a firearm or something like this. Um, there's always um, a new terrorist organization out there with a new name. Um, that's going to replace one that was there four or five years ago. And this is going to be the news's um, way of basically creating, trying to create recency and actually make their, make their news sellable and everything. Well, that in itself is just like it's gotten to the point of where is there really any news being reported? You know, for me, this, this feels like it's more stories than it is actual news. And, and I want that to hit home, you know, because it, it, for me, is something that I've actually questioned the mechanisms that actually create news. Why does it seem so repetitive? Why does it seem like the same stories are being twisted and maybe somebody's digging a name out of a pot and that becomes the next name of the next terrorist organization? Al-Qadim, Al-something, al something, you know, blah, blah, blah. Arab nation. It's always pointing at an Arab nation and everything. You can almost always roll the dice and find out that it's going to be pointed somewhere over there. You know, choose your nation too. You've got 13 nations to choose from. It's going to be Iran. It's going to be Iraq. It's going to be Saudi Arabia. It's going to be Syria. You know, it's going to be one of these nations and everything that's ultimately going to have the same type of news. You know, there's going to be a new terrorist organization and uh, they're basically trying to blow up the world. It's always going to be the same thing. News story. Yeah, they're, they're going to call it news story, but it's always the same fucking thing. Why is that? You know, I mean, is it true? That's actually the biggest question I've been, I've been starting to ask. Well, for me, I don't believe it's true anymore. For me, I just believe it's a, it's a part of the fabrication that goes on that basically says we've gone, that we've grown collectively brain dead and we don't have the capability to be able to think of something new and uh, as a result, the entire engine itself of reality, at least from the United States' perspective and from this, this collective perspective and everything that's influence, influencing us, just needs a little bit of a revision. We need to come up with better stories. You know, now, um, I'm going to point my, my finger at this event tonight, and I know that a part of the lesson I should have learned, you know, through at Fort Meade and everything was basically quit pointing the fingers at the problems. Well, in this case, it's a little bit different, though. Um, the, the difference is, 
we have a, a potential source out there that may or may not exist, you know, when it comes down to terrorist activities and that kind of stuff. And I'm not trying to say whether or not it does or doesn't. You know, that's, that's really important here. But what I am trying to say is that we've got different news organizations that are out there that, in theory, should have different perspectives. Fox News, CNN, um, NBC, we've got the local news affiliates and that kind of stuff and everything. And uh, in a general sense, the type of news that actually makes the headlines and that kind of stuff for each of these papers, um, in theory, should be different. Now, we have no tonal differences. Everyone tends to be a little bit dire. You know, it tends to be a little bit more dramatic um, about trying to, it almost seems like it's trying to stress people out. Oh, that doesn't make any sense. You know, I mean, for a news agency to actually not have a perspective, you know, and and also prints the same fucking news that's in every fucking other newspaper that I've seen, too. I mean, that doesn't make sense. You know, these are owned by people, you know, in theory. People that have perspectives, in theory. People that have opinions and personalities and desires and wants and goals and that kind of stuff, in theory. But for some reason, it just uh, it seems to be the same shit all the time. <laughs> so, in any case, um, the lesson I learned from all that back then, back then was the story. The story really is the greatest, um, not just the greatest weapon of all time, but it's the greatest tool as well. You know, through this tool, you can reshape reality. You can, you can alter, I mean, Doctor Who is wonderful, for instance. And, uh, Star Trek is also another wonderful story, too. But the interesting thing about it is there's a mystery of Amelia Earhart and her disappearance. Now, I myself, um, I come from a, a line of people that were in intelligence inside the military. And uh, my grandpa, he was actually in uh, naval intelligence himself uh, during World War II. And uh, in I ended up taking up for, it was, he was the first civilian person I ended up taking up for a flight, and uh, he ended up coming from California right after I ended up getting my pilot's license, and he wanted to go out flying with me, and part of the reason he wanted to go up with me is just because he, he loved flying. He had always wanted to become a pilot himself, but he really never had the stamina or perseverance that uh, it took in order to achieve that and everything. Now, he owned his own business. He was pretty successful with his businesses and everything. Very successful, actually. Half of California, is, of uh, Southern California in particular, Los Angeles area and everything is built up because of him. But um, he, uh, when he came out to go flying with me, uh, he ended up, uh, as, as the plane started go getting aloft and everything, he became a little bit more gabby. And uh, he ended up, um, we had a, a lengthy discussion while we were up in the air, and he was loving the flight and everything. I'd never seen him so animated in my life. And he ended up telling me, it's just like, um, I haven't told anybody else in the family this, but uh, I was in uh, naval intelligence, and uh, he goes, uh, I used to be, I used to fly in the uh, underbelly of, uh, 
of the B, I think it was B-1 bombers that they actually flew in the World War II. And he goes, uh, he was stationed out at, um, away from basically everything over in the Atlantic, and he was actually in the Caribbean for most of his tour of duty during the, uh, during World War II. And, uh, he ended up spending a lot of time in and around the Bermuda Triangle. And, um, there was a time that, uh, what he would do was he would actually, what they did was they cleared out the tail gunner section of the uh, bomber, and that's actually where he rode, and he was a military spotter. So what they would do is uh, anytime a, a, a aircraft or a boat would go missing, in particular around the Bermuda Triangle area, which they were having pretty severe problems with back then, um, his, his would be one of the first response teams that would actually go out looking for those, uh, for those craft and everything. So they ended up getting a call during, uh, it was, I can't remember the exact date and everything, and uh, they ended up saying, uh, finding out that a plane had gone, gotten uh, lost after taking off from Bermuda, shortly taking off from Bermuda, right in the region of the Bermuda Triangle. So they ended up taking off from Florida, where he was uh, stationed, and uh, they ended up going and circling around this area for quite a while and everything. They, for three solid days, they ended up... Um, they learned pretty quickly that it was Amelia Earhart's uh, aircraft. Hold on a second. I think I hear somebody around me. <laughs> yeah, they learned pretty quickly that it was uh, Amelia Earhart's uh, aircraft that had, uh, had gone missing shortly after taking off from Bermuda and uh, on its final leg home to, uh, to the United States and everything after a worldwide tour. Well, they ended up for three days um, circling around and trying to find the aircraft, and ultimately they couldn't find it. And, uh, and all of a sudden, um, on the th uh, well, I shouldn't say ultimately, on the third day, they ended up finding pieces of the, uh, of the tail, tail and the prop. And at that point, they ended up... Um, they called up, uh, called in one of the boats, and they ended up fishing the uh, the prop out of the ocean and everything. Well, that prop now sits at North uh, North Hollywood uh, Library, and it's actually mounted inside the North Hollywood Library, and that's actually something he ended up putting in there himself um, when they ended up building the library and everything. And um, what I what I learned afterwards was uh, the nature of what happened with that event. Well. In historical records, that event has actually ended up, um, has been historically logged as occurring over in the, over in the Pacific Ocean. So, somewhere out of, uh, near Japan or something like that, this is where it was claimed to happen and everything. And he goes, no, we were definitely in the Atlantic, and, uh, because I'd, I'd known the history about Amelia Earhart and everything. And he goes, no, we were definitely in the, uh, in the, in the Atlantic and everything, and, you know, this is what happened. And he explained that, uh, the reason for doing this is they, they believed that the nature of the Bermuda Triangle was people's fears were actually responsible for creating this anomaly, and, um, that anomaly in space and time. And a, and a big part of the problem that was occurring was, uh, you know, with the Bermuda Triangle, uh, was being exacerbated by people's fears of the Bermuda Triangle. 
I find this found this really interesting. So what what they said uh, what he said they did was uh, starting with Amelia Earhart and actually with any um, notable figures that ended up miss going missing over that uh, triangle, they would actually end up uh, taking the locations that, that that they ended up disappearing from, and they would erase the records. You know, so the military uh, along with uh, civilian agencies, they'd work together to basically put it in different locations around the world and everything. So where any time major boats or anything like that went missing around this time frame and after, um, they end up uh, making it appear like it ended up happening at different different regions around the world. Well, this is this is intelligence, and uh, this is the interesting thing about um, about the nature of reality and everything about uh, their awareness of how the mind functioned too. So he ended up telling me a story, and I, I ended up checking out some of my facts uh, when I ended up getting in the NSA, and I ended up learning, uh, you know, that uh, everything he was saying was absolutely true, and I ended up finding out some of the other uh, other vessels that ended up mi going missing in that that uh, that vicinity, that uh, the historical records and the, the documents that have have been written historically, and that might you might see on Wikipedia or in encyclopedias and that kind of stuff. Um, have been altered, you know, just basically to maintain and to diminish the problem that was occurring over in the Bermuda Triangle. Well, this is the power of the story. You can quite literally alter the fabric of reality itself, you know, through that story. You can diminish the threat of what was uh, considered to be a black hole that was forming on the surface of the planet and everything. And uh, you could quite literally diminish the threat of that from happening by basically teaching people to believe that there's nothing to fear there. And ultimately, the the myth of the of the Bermuda Triangle, which um, is I, it's it was it's now considered largely to be a myth, but before it certainly wasn't. It was a massive problem. This is how they ended up mitigating the threat to it. You know, it's through the power of a single story. So. And this is actually, you know, among the reasons I ended up going through the public affairs program and why, um, you know, why I ended up getting selected to, be, to go into the NSA was just in part the ability to be able to understand stories, you know, to be able to, to, be able to understand that stories themselves are actually what's responsible for, in a literal sense, forming the construct of this thing called reality itself. You know, it's... Um, you know, it, it, for the most part, that there's this overall general belief that uh, that reality itself, that bio biological functions and you know natural functions, physical functions, and that kind of stuff, are are a process that we're studying. And as we're studying those processes, we get a, a greater understanding of what's happening through the microscope and through all these different things. And and we're more or less studying something that already is now. It's a little bit harder to imagine that what we're studying, you know, in, in the process when we're actually peering at the fringes of reality and everything, is actually something that's actually in its formative stages. You know, so in, in the case of, you know, trying to understand, you know, what the problem is with the Bermuda Triangle and the, you know, the problem being, you know, and the threat growing larger thus requiring more time, more energy, and that kind of stuff. Well, the U.S. military ended up having a, a completely taking a different approach all to, to it altogether. And they ended up being part of a conspiracy intentionally. They basically said they believe, you know, that by and large, some of the problems that are occurring are a direct result 
of fear. And if you learn to actually mitigate this threat called fear by basically altering the distribution of media, you know, and not only that, but altering altering what's what is what is actually going out on media channels and everything, at that point you can quite literally change the world. Well, I know most people have a hard time believing that the military itself never engages in military operations. Ever. The military I was in doesn't do it. You know, now what we do do is we, t- we tell a lot of stories. You know, about how it happens and everything. Does that mean we're incapable? Well, from a, a, a civilian agency perspective and everything, you know, the NSA, no, it doesn't. You know, it means we're probably the most capable capable warriors that ever existed because we're all trained for war. You know, but we all choose not to engage in it. You know, we, we all wield the most powerful weapon in existence, which is the story. We've all been in explicitly and exclusively trained in it, and it's uh, and it's far-reaching capabilities and implications. You know, but what we don't do is we don't choose to wield it like a weapon. I mean, that's the beauty about uh, Hollywood. You know, it's it's a storytelling organization. So, in any case, um, so I ended up getting done with that flight with my grandfather, and uh, shortly after, um, that was about ninety, it's about ninety six when when I ended up taking that flight with him. Um, shortly after, it was nineteen ninety nine when the NSA first approached me. It was uh, two thousand and one when I ended up accepting the uh, contract with them, and uh, it took about a year and a half, two years to get the program set up in order for me to actually uh, enter it. And um, I'll go so far to say I I loved what I went through. Um, I appreciate everything that this country and this world's done for me. And um, I don't know. You know, there's some things that of course that I wish I had done differently you know when it comes down to being nicer and being kinder and being different and being more appreciative and that kind of stuff and everything you know but the simple fact of the matter is I mean I had I had stories going through my head and so many different stories and so many different perspectives and everything until all of a sudden I started learning to tell better stories you know, to myself, you know, about why, why, altogether, who I am, why I'm here, what's going on, um, what my purpose is, what the purpose in life is, altogether, you know, all these different things. I didn't realize that, uh, that the stories I was telling myself were actually creating the world and creating the very things that I was, uh, I was paranoid of. And that this uh, reciprocative, circular relationship that I was in with my own mind and, you know, the things that were going on in the outside world, I had some marvelous people actually point out some, uh, some of my thinking processes, not choosing to make me right or wrong for them, but just basically exposing them, you know, to me and making me ask the hard question of whether or not this is actually preferred or not. You know, so when that guy, um, that Navy guy, he ended up uh, asking that question to me, you know, 
can you actually tell a story that supports these guys rather than tears them down? You know, supports uh, supports the organizations. Is there something positive you can say rather than something negative? He was absolutely right. I mean, and uh, and both stories are are absolutely right as well. You know, there's uh, there's different perspectives for each thing, and while each one had its own truth, you know, it doesn't make any any one truth more valid than the other. It's just different perspectives. Now, that could be any number of different truths, you know, for a story and everything. So one time I was actually I was uh, with my ex-wife, um, uh, Lisa, and it had been two years um, since I had actually had had an affair on her. I had had four affairs throughout the course of our relationship and everything, and I felt like dog shit inside. I just didn't like myself as a person and everything. You know, this woman who I considered to be so magnificent, um, I loved her. You know, I still do to this day. You know, she's just um, an amazing woman. You know, light-hearted, cherry. She's just got a, a, a fun, you know, just authentic personality. And I, and I thought that at that time. And that's actually why, you know, after four years uh, or two years of not having had a relationship and not having cheated on her or anything like that and actually feeling like I was being becoming the man that uh, she deserved and everything. I kind of kicked myself, began kicking myself in the ass and everything for not being the man that uh, that I need, that I should have been during the por- first part of our relationship and everything. So we ended up taking a trip. Um, it was about 2001, and uh, I had kept uh, the affairs all secret and everything. I had not told her any of the quote-unquote truths about the you know the relationships that I was in, you know the affairs I had with other women and everything. So me and uh, me and her and Bill and uh, his girlfriend that he was seeing at that point, Chrissy. Um, we all ended up taking a trip to Kingman for a weekend, and uh, we just wanted to escape Phoenix for a weekend and everything, and uh, ended up taking off to Kingman, and I was kind of hating myself, you know, I had been working my ass off in general um, over to Touchscape and everything, um, so much shit was going on for me, and it was just basically all piling up, you know, it was basically it was causing an intense depression, I was just beating myself up all over the place. So, I had the intention of taking this trip and everything, and, and taking Lisa aside, and um, I- explaining the whole situation about what happened. You know, just basically, you know, saying to her, it's just like, here's, you know, here's what happened. Um, the last time anything like this happened and everything was two years ago. You know, I had planned this out in advance. Now, I wanted to be away from Phoenix, away from the setting, you know, of these relationships and everything. And while um, I I didn't know what the response would be and everything, um, I brought Bill and uh, Chrissy along just because I, I don't know. I, I don't know why I brought them with. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I should have taken her by myself and everything, but for some reason, I decided to bring Lisa with and everything, or bring these two with. So when we showed up there, um, 
it was like the first night uh, I, I ended up getting cold feet and I, I decided not to tell her. And the second night, I ended up, uh, we had separate rooms. No, it was actually in the same room. And I ended up leaning over to her and I said, Lisa, I've got to tell you something. You know, and I ended up telling her. And uh, I, as I told her, I saw her face. And it was just the, the look of absolute horror that was on her face. Now, it's not that I, I lied about the relationships. I never, I never really had the need to tell her because I was never in love with the other women. You know, I was always, it was always something, it was just, um, for me it was physical. It was just basically the relationship with me and Lisa was growing a little bit cold emotionally when it came down to the sex. It just, uh, the intensity and, and the enjoyment that I was getting out of it just wasn't the same. And, um, but I love Lisa, so I, I maintained the relationship. And every time I ended up having an affair, it was one of those things that I just basically said, you know, Lisa doesn't need to know because for me, it's not changing the state of the relationship. I love her, you know? The love has changed, absolutely. But, you know, it's not because of the, this affair. It's just because, you know, I myself, I'm, I've become, a, you know, used to this person, you know, and this isn't a bad or a good thing, it's just how things are. You know, so for me, I was developing a new, what I considered a new norm. You know, and that was just basically a don't disclose, you know, type of type of storytelling. You know, and uh, as long as nobody else uh, nobody else said anything, I, there was no reason for me to ever, ever tell her. You know, so this, this whole story, this whole belief, you know, system as far as the affairs were concerned and everything, you know, persisted for about five years, you know, from the first point that I ended up sleeping with a girl, Deidre, um, another girl, Brenda, another girl, Haley, and another girl, uh, Shondell. Um, by the time me and her, we ended up sleeping, uh, you know, having this uh, discussion, our relationship was already on the fritz anyways. We were already having problems. And um, for me, um, I felt like I was the source of the problem, so I was convinced of it. And at this point, I just wanted to discuss with her, because the way I looked at it was, um, it was my lack of honesty, and, you know, my lack of honesty with her that was causing the rift to occur, and uh, I can potentially um, help heal this situation and everything by, by coming clean with her. So I did. And uh, as I did, the look of shock and horror in her face is something I'll never forget. And... Um, you know, it's one of those things that uh, when I ended up telling her, I, I, I started realizing the necessity that I should have maintained in not telling her. I'd probably be married to this day had I not told her about the affairs. You know, just because I, th I mean, that woman is really that special enough to me. You know, now, if I would have... Uh, and it was about this time we were talking about having an open relationship anyways. So had I just simply endured and gone through the process of letting our relationship develop into an open relationship and let that persist for a couple years, let that sink into us, and then at that point turn around and basically say, okay, by the way, I did have a couple uh, affairs before we ended up having the open relationship, and at that point she'd be desensitized to it, and as a result I you know, could have slipped it in and everything, and she would have been okay with it by then, but no. 
I didn't choose to do it that way. And the way I chose to do it, do it, just, you know, it's one of those things that, from a, a story perspective, it just isn't, wasn't the right way. In any case, um, I, I think that's actually the valuable thing that I ended up learning, you know, through the course of my training with the NSA, was understanding who's receiving the information, um, taking into consideration at all times what's in it for me. And not only that, but also taking into consideration the dualistic impact. What's the, the end result I'm seeking? Well, if I would have taken, if I would have had this NSA training beforehand and the U.S. military training beforehand, I would have very quickly understood that the what's in it for me and everything absolution isn't going to occur. I mean, that's just simply not realistic. You know, the truth isn't always going to set you free. You know, and in this case, whether or not it was the um, the guys talking, you know, as far as the uh, the situation that, that was caused by, you know, three people over at the uh, military base and everything, you know, um, whether or not it was that situation or the response of the fire department, both of them were trues. You know, it's like, and the same thing holds true for me and Lisa. I absolutely loved Lisa. It was it was very little. You know, I mean, saying that there's nothing I would do for somebody is is kind of erroneous, right? There's nearly nothing I wouldn't do for Lisa. You know, and, and that stands to this day. But, you know, when it came down to it, I made a commitment to something that I myself started realizing that we needed to revise. You know, so... Is absolution, is truth, you know, really going to set me free? Well, you know, having the NSA training, the uh, the military training, realizing that um, there's a necessity to not necessarily disclose the things that happen in my own life to my partner and everything, particularly when that partnership could be damaged. Now, that may be selfish, but to some degree, my relationships are crucial to me. You know, and the idea of the truth isn't necessarily always the single truth. I mean, realizing that over years, over the years after that, after we would have, uh, if I would have started working hard on developing an open relationship and everything, I know factually that five years down the road that I could have disclosed the truth and that truth would have been received differently. I know that for a fact. You know, so if I just simply would have would have done a little bit more planning and come to understand that that truth that I was delivering and everything didn't have to be disclosed right then and right there, but it could be disclosed at a much later time and everything, and the impact is going to be profoundly different. And not only that, but maintain the integrity of that relationship and everything. Well, that's what I should have done. You know, so here's the thing. Sometimes, you know, delivering of information on a timely basis isn't the most, um, most delicate of ways of, of handling things. It's not necessarily the best way of handling things. And that's actually something I realized back then. Just because I had come to this conclusion that uh, I needed to come clean about my relationship and everything. That was one of the most heinous 
things that's ever happened to me, personally. I don't like what I did to her. Unfortunately, you know, life is full of lessons that we learn from, right? That we go through, and hindsight's always twenty twenty. and looking back and saying, woulda, coulda, shoulda. <clears throat> In the case of Lisa, though, it, it was weird. It, it's almost like I felt like I was trying to hurt her. And I didn't know why. That was another problem that was happening. I didn't know where some of these emotions were coming from. And um, what was going on specifically with me internally. All I knew is I, I felt like I needed to come clean. That was part of the reason I ended up doing that this weekend. But I didn't know the reasons why. I didn't know what was going on. I just knew that uh, it needed to come out and everything. Well... I'm divorced now as a result of it. Um, I've since learned that uh, even though somebody can find out that news, you know, sometimes there is something called little sensitivity. You know, and that the importance of sensitivity and the delivery of that information doesn't necessarily have to come, you know, at, at the exact time that it's happening. that it can be delayed and that delay can make or break the difference between a, a relationship remaining versus that relationship being lost forever so in any case um, that weapon you know the weapon called the the story it's also a tool. It can you can spin information, you can delay information, you can abstract and diffuse and point the direction in other locations and everything. You can portray something in a different light. You can make yourself think different things than you ever did before. You can lead yourself to believe entirely different belief systems and everything, and quite literally, in, an in a very real sense, alter the fundamental way that you perceive reality. I'm not saying it's always healthy, you know, to do that, that, that kind of stuff and everything. But sometimes in order to rebuild who you are, and to become somebody different, you got to tell yourself a, f a few lies. you got to let yourself be hurt. And you also got to give yourself the opportunity to heal from it, Tim. And the story, the power of the story. Uh, that's that gives you the capability not just to shape everybody else's world, but our own. That's my story. That's what I'm sticking to.